This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. Today, we're talking to critically acclaimed strength coach Moritz. Through his training, he has produced three Olympic gold medal winners, as well as seven professional world champions. And in this episode, we're going to be focusing on everything nutrition and strength optimization for your health. So let's dive in. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Decentralized Radio. Today, we have an exciting podcast guest. We have Moritz Klatten from Germany, who is uh, definitely aligned with a lot of the things we're into today. So welcome, Moritz. How's it going? Nice to meet you. I'm doing really well. How about you? Good, good. And uh, yeah, our lovely co-host as well, Ryan. How's it going? Thanks, man. It's doing good. Just spent all day in the sun, back inside. feel like I got to get outside right after this because the blue light's just drying out my eyes, but we're... We're, we're banging. I'm ready for this. Awesome. So yeah, we're a mutual friend, Leon, you know, put me on to you and, you know, I was checking out your, your profile, what you're into. It's, it's right up our alley, you know, Bitcoin, meat, cold exposure, breath work, boxing, you know, strength training. It's really like what I'm all about too. So why don't we, you know, dive in a little bit of, of your background and, and starting maybe on, you know, the health fitness side of things like, you know, what kind of got you into this space? Was it boxing? You know, how did you recently become more, you know, training people in cold and, and breath work? Yeah. So if you could just provide a background, how you kind of got into a lot of these cool modalities. Sure. I'm into strength and conditioning since like 2000. And um, my main mentor was Charles Poliquin. He's one of the most influential persons in my life, not just when it comes to strength training, also to diet and also a lot of other things. And um, I've been specializing in strength and conditioning mainly for professional athletes, not just training boxers, also training football players. It's like the number one sport here in Europe. And um, yeah, so that I started first in strength and conditioning, basically specializing in training athletes. And then I really got also into boxing and not just training boxers, not just doing the strength and conditioning, but also doing the boxing training. And I've also been managing a lot of fighters. So I've been training like over five world champions. And um, recently in the last few years, since four years, I've, I've, I'm also teaching people when it comes to cold exposure and breath work. So um, when it comes to breath work, my main mentor is basically Wim Hof. He's also a good friend of mine and I've learned a lot from him basically. And um, also thanks to Leon for, for hooking this up. He He's the guy basically that orange pilled me. So I'm very thankful to him for that. There we go. Yeah, we need to get him on here as, as well. So, well, yeah. that's that's really cool. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm curious, you know, what what modalities, you know, are you like implementing with, you know, your clients? You talk about football players. I played football, soccer here in the U.S., uh, you know, my whole life and college as well. So how are you kind of taking a, you know, a modern approach because I'm curious how it is on the professional side of things. You know, a lot of the professional athletes here in the U.S., you know, some of them, uh, you know, are very into their health and training, you know, doing like hyperbaric oxygen and, and cold and, and have a very clean diet. But then a lot of them are still like eating junk and, you know, playing video games all day. And 
I'm curious, uh, yeah, how, how you see it at a high level. I know a lot of the elite soccer, you know, football teams are, are very biometric heavy. You know, they wear a lot of these bibs and tracking recovery and a lot of these things. But yeah, I'm curious how you implement, you know, maybe cold breath work and, and diet into their protocol. Cause obviously they're a lot more, you know, glycolytic uh, than the average person uh, as well. Well, I would say that when it comes to strength and conditioning, you are actually way more advanced in the U.S. than in, in Europe. And especially the football players, most of them never really reach their full potential because they don't really take that well care of their diet. There's a few exceptions, but most of them don't. And most of them, they don't even train twice per day. So, And, and it's absolutely the wrong training, you know, so... I guess when, you, when I look at American football, for example, I think the strength and conditioning is already much more advanced at a much higher level. Mm-hmm. So in, if I compare sports, in boxing, it's different. Most of the fighters do reach their full potential, but it's also different going into a fight than going into a game, you know? So when I meet fighters, often I have to actually make sure that they actually train less. They're actually in overtraining. Whereas with football players, that hardly ever happens. Most of them are under-trained, you know? So I'm sort of curious because I know you're into sort of animal-based diets as well. I'd love to know sort of your experience with yourself and your, your own training and stuff like that with animal-based diets and sort of why you've leaned to sort of that side of the spectrum versus like a stereotypical or athletic. Um, I know here in the U.S., it's like a lot of carbohydrates and stuff like that is predominantly what's what's you know, spoken about in the world of sports. And I'm not like the most athletic dude i'm kind of a rail over here but um i guess it's just very interesting because it sounds counterintuitive um and i know we're all into it but i think it'd be good for the listener to sort of sort of hear your point of view on that no absolutely like through my mentor charles poliquin i incorporated eating a lot of meat like very early on like in 2002 i was already eating like he taught me to he taught me to eat a meat and nuts breakfast so you basically eat one type of meat whether that's like bison buffalo or beef and you, and you add like a few nuts, maybe an avocado or something. And it's really the perfect breakfast to get your day started. You know, you raise your dopamine, which is like the neurotransmitter of motivation. You raise your acetylcholine, which is the neurotransmitter of attention. So that's the best way to start the day, you know. So I kept doing that for, for 20 years now. For, so And I, I find it not just the most successful, best diet for for fighters or athletes, it's even for executives, you know. So it's it's also absolutely the right thing to to stay sharp during the day. You know, I would not call myself like many plebs call themselves carnivores. I wouldn't call my diet. I'm I'm not a carnivore. Like if I eat just meat, um, for me it's like a bit of a taste fatigue because obviously just with meat to cover all the nutrients you need to eat so many organs. And I mean I do like calf's liver and calf's brain. But I don't like to eat that on a daily basis myself. And if I just eat meat, it's a bit too acidic for my type of diet. So I like to eat. I like. I sometimes tell people it's like I'm on a on a vegetarian diet. The only thing I do is that I add two kilogram of meat. You know. So. No, I think that's that's a good point too. And I, I I don't consider myself carnivore either. I mean, in the winter, I'm probably more carnivore-ish, but still eating you know fermented vegetables, sauerkraut, things like that. But yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. So I'm curious as well, you know, you talked about the overtraining, undertraining aspect. I think this is, this is something that's really been talked a lot about in the health community. It's like, you know, rest is extremely important. 
Um, you know, a lot of people overdo it, especially when it comes to hormonal health, like testosterone can definitely, you know, plummet when you're overtraining, especially chronic cardio. So I'm curious, you know, how are you kind of measuring these things uh, in your, you know, athletes that you're working with? You're saying football players, a lot of them uh, are un- not really training to their full potential. So how are you kind of monitoring this this balance and how does that relate to maybe, you know, the everyday uh, amateur athlete or, you know, weekend warrior, kind of someone like me who's, you know, training quite a bit, but of course not at the, uh, you know, professional level. Well, for me, the tools, I like to keep it simple. You know, I think genius is, as Albert Einstein said, genius is in simplicity, you know, so I don't want to have most, also the amateur athletes, they don't have all these measurement tools available. So what I use is basically I measure the vertical jump on a daily basis and I measure the weight. And those things, especially also lean athletes, sometimes overnight they lose a kilogram or something for no reason, even though they had a big meal. So that's sometimes a sign of overtraining. And once you lower your uh, vertical jump, the, the measurement, that's also a good sign of overtraining. So those are the two tools. And then I'll also look at the, the, the training week and what they've done, you know. So I don't have full control of all the training other than the strength and conditioning with the athletes other than the boxes that I train. So often also when I look what they've done, they have done way too much aerobic work. So I personally think that aerobic work is really overrated for most sports, especially like for football and soccer and boxing. These are not aerobic sports. And I think that aerobic training is like self-castrating human nature, you know. So we don't kill an animal by throwing a rock. We, We don't chase after the rabbit for three hours. All we do is we do short sprint, throw a rock at the rabbit, and that's how we kill the rabbit, you know? So that's natural to me. So if you look at the hormonal response after aerobic training, it's pretty terrible, you know? So your growth hormone goes down, your testosterone goes down, cortisol goes up. And if you do, let's say, sprint training, it's exactly the opposite, you know? The testosterone goes up, growth hormone goes up, cortisol actually goes down. So that's even prevalent in, you know, the aerobic sports of, of boxing and, and soccer slash football um, is what you're saying. You're still focused on, you know, more, you know, explosive sprint level distances as opposed to kind of longer cardio sessions. Absolutely, because all of these sports are actually anaerobic sports. So whether it's boxing also, if you look at football, the money in football is earned by the people that, that are the quickest in the first two, four meters. Yep, yeah. It's not like running a marathon or something, you know? Yeah, I think there's more stop and go than, than people realize playing, you know, soccer my whole life. It's it's a lot of like, you know, slow trotting around and then, you know, some explosive sprinting. And, you know, I mean, you have to have a good aerobic base, I think, but I think you can easily overtrain that. And you I feel like you build a good aerobic base by by just playing the sport. So it doesn't make like, sense. To, yeah. It doesn't make sense maybe to overdo it outside of, outside of that. So, and, and you're taking their weight, you know, every night and then in the morning or what, what frequency are you doing that? Right. I, I like to measure the vertical, the, the weight right in the morning after they wake up and the vertical jump as early as possible, whenever they can do it. If they don't have a way to measure it at home, then at, at the, at the club, you know, Understood. And in terms of uh, another thing, you know, in general is is muscle mass. I feel like, you know, boxing, football, you know, American football is, is a bit different. Um, you know, the muscle mass of, of most NFL players is pretty substantial. 
but you know, in soccer and European football and boxing, I feel like there's kind of a happy medium between, you know, how bulky and muscular you are and, you know, how quick you can be. So is that something you kind of take into account, you know, training wise as well and trying to reach a sweet spot with people for both muscle mass as well as, you know, body fat percentage, or do you kind of just, that's a byproduct of the training you have? I think that it's still like people think that most of them are not really bulky enough. So with most of these athletes, you can actually add quite a lot of muscle mass and they believe that it, it does waste energy and it slows them down. But if it's, ga if it's gained in the right rep ranges, let's say, for example, for soccer and football, you're training in the low rep ranges and you just focus on strength training, getting their strength up, then it's not wasting any energy. It's actually making them more explosive, you know? So if you look at sprinters, for example, they do really heavy squats sometimes on the day of the competition, you know? So the same would really work also for, for sports like boxing and football as well. That is interesting. You, you mentioned um, like hormonal dysregulation from like too much aerobic exercise. Cause in my own experience, and I'm not like an athlete, my, I played golf in college, which isn't really an aerobic or a strength sport. I guess you could argue the strength side is actually more important now, especially with professional golfers, like actually beefing up. It's kind of interesting. But um, what I found fascinating is that in my own experience um, training is that at my worst health of several years ago, I was doing a lot of cardio and my testosterone was tanked, like completely tanked. And I do know that like strength training is important for, for testosterone and stuff like that and sleep and all that stuff. But um, I, I think it's just sort of a misnomer with aerobic exercise in general that it's the most beneficial exercise. I have conversations with a lot of friends um, about this that consider running to be like the best exercise for weight loss, for example. And I don't necessarily think that to be the case. I don't think that's what you would find either, Moritz, right? Absolutely, because of the hormonal response from it, you know? So that's why most doctors, they would still prescribe like aerobic work also for health. And one of the most important things for, for determining the age of your life is actually muscle mass and also strength, you know? So, so there's also really new studies confirming that, but it obviously takes time until doctors actually read into this and actually apply this, you know? So... You do have some good functional nutritionists and, and doctors in, in, in the States, but in, in Germany, in my country, that's really lacking still, you know? Yeah, they feel like there's not as many gym bros in, in Germany, maybe in Europe in general. <laughs> it's gotten better. I've You know, I visit Europe quite a bit. It's getting better for there's sure. There's more, but more gyms, fun. but yeah, the average person is definitely more prevalent in the U.S., which is, which is interesting. Um, I don't know if it's, it's a good thing as well, but then you get the whole, you know, gym bro culture and, you know, everyone, half the people are on yeah. steroids. So it's, uh, <laughs> that's a whole nother issue. But the next thing I want to talk about is something that I'm very passionate about, something that has really gotten mainstream the past six months. And I think that's because of Andrew Huberman, Joe Rogan, and that's cold, you know, cold exposure, cold therapy. And, I'm curious on a few things is, you know, how you incorporate this into your athletes programs. Um, I know recently, you know, everyone's talked about, you know, pre-workout or, you know, in the beginning of the day is more ideal um, compared to post-workout. Um, so you don't blunt like hypertrophy, natural inflammatory responses. Um, I'm curious as well, you know, you, you talk about Wim Hof training and, uh, you know, how you incorporate, you know, breath work into the practice. But yeah, uh, I'm, you know, 
what do you do with cold? You know, how do you reap the benefits of it without overdoing it? And, you know, how are you doing it in terms of a timing protocol and things like that? Yeah, I mean, you have to really be careful when you incorporate this type of training, you know. If it's new to an athlete, it can also put a lot of stress on the adrenals. So you need to get the athletes slowly used to it and also do the right timing. As you said, like, for example, if, if you want after a hypertrophy session, if that's the response that you want, then it actually blunts that because you create inflammation and the cold exposure decreases in inflammation. So it's absolutely the wrong thing to do right after after strength training and hypertrophy session. But for those people, you could incorporate it before the session even or like in the morning, like a few hours before the session. But after, let's say, a, a running session or a specific sports session, whether that be boxing or football, they can actually do it right after and it actually gives you a good response because then it's actually good to reduce inflammation right after the session. So it's like an ice bath after practice is, is good then still? It's great for recovery, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Because my whole life we did, you know, 10, 15 minutes in the ice bath after, you know, intense soccer games or practices. And now with everything going on, this new research, I question whether that was still a good thing. Because now, you know, my training style is different. I just, you know, more strength training. So I do it before I work out. But if you're saying that that was still helpful for recovery, then yeah, that's but good. After the workout, then you should, yeah, if, it's, yeah. if it's like strength training, you should not do it okay. after. But if it's like a specific sports session, then I think it's absolutely fine to do it after. Okay. And then the question is also when, they, when you did 10, 15 minutes, what type of ice bath that was, whether it was just really ice cold water. I mean, in Celsius, was it really below 10 Celsius and you stayed 15 minutes in there or was it just slightly cold, you know, like, between 10, 15 Celsius. Yeah, it was probably like between that. 10 and 15 Celsius. You know, it wasn't, I mean, maybe 10. It was probably right at 10. It's not as cold as I, and now I do them at like 1 to 4C in the winter time. So it's a big difference. Exactly. And I think then you should also, you should not do it 10, 15 no, minutes. No, yeah. Way too long. Now I do like I two. Celsius, I mean, people tend to really overdo it. You mm -hmm. get the full effect after two minutes. That's when cold thermogenesis starts taking place. And then you get the full effect. So I personally never prescribe longer than five minutes, especially if you do it on a regular basis. Otherwise, it's not actually good for you. Then it actually impairs recovery. Yeah, that, that's something Ryan and I were talking about before the show. Is yeah. like I feel like cold. Yeah, and you said it as well. It's uh, it's so powerful, but it's so easy to overdo it. So you know, I've actually I think two or three of the times I've I've gotten sick in the past, like two, three years, which has been just about two or three times has been from overdoing cold exposure or, you know, I was just like overdoing too many things. And then I just kind of jumped back in, hadn't done cold in a while, hadn't done it in a few months. And then I was in like, you know, two sea water for like five minutes. And yeah, it's, it's easy to overdo it. So really build your, build yourself also, up. Naturally, you want to try more. Naturally, we yeah. overdo things, you know? The so brain. It's all about the right dosage. I mean, even water can be toxic if you drink too much of it, you know? So yeah, it's like it's the story of my life program. overdoing things. <laughs> But uh, actually, that actually raises a question because you mentioned like being careful, especially when introducing cold therapy to a new athlete. And I, yeah. I sort of would, would wonder because uh, I've, I've done some cold therapy, but my body's, extra sensitive due to some of my autoimmune conditions that I've dealt with in the past and nervous system conditions. So I've gotten to the point where like I do wrist and face dunks, or I just try to do prolonged cold in the natural cold, which is like just natural temperature outside in the winter. 
but I was curious how would how would you ease an athlete in so that they don't have the repercussions that say me and Tristan have felt doing it ourselves? Well, I, I normally start just with cold showers, you know, slowly start with like 20 seconds, then and then increase it to two minutes and then the body gets used to it. And then first, when they do their first ice bath, only really just dip fully in there 10 seconds and then go out. Then either whatever you have available, that's whether it's a, it's a infrared sauna, a finished sauna or a hot shower, you take a hot shower and then you go in there again. But the most important thing is that you always finish with the cold because then you activate the brown adipose tissue activation right at the end. That's what Huberman calls the Solberg effect, you know? Yeah, yeah. I've heard him talk about it. The, the other thing actually I was going to ask you was sort of the the opposite of that because I have an infrared sauna sitting over here. When when would that be beneficial around like a training time? Because I've well, done it after. The best way to do it is you start with the ice, then you go in the sauna, then you go in the ice, then you go in the sauna, and then you finish with the ice, basically. That makes sense. Yeah. But sometimes that's also too much. Sometimes it's it's good enough just to have one ice bath and then and that's it, you know? Sometimes it depends also on the day and on, on the on the training volume of the week when it comes oh, to athletes. For sure. There's a lot of nuance in there. And I know like for myself, I've had to go low and slow with both because I've actually overdone it in here and severely dehydrated myself. Um, and I've done that, like you mentioned earlier, like overdoing water. I've done that too, especially going into a more animal-based ketogenic style diet for a while. Um, flushing all my electrolytes out with too much water is it's super dangerous. And it's, you think it's difficult to get low sodium in blood, but it's not when you just drink a lot of plain water without refilling electrolytes and just pissing it away. Absolutely. I totally agree. You know, like that's why I always add electrolytes. Well, what I personally do like is just drinking coconut water, you know, that oh, yeah. has already all the, all the electrolytes inside. And then I find it more natural than adding electrolytes all the time. So it's good to mix it up, actually. Sometimes to drink water and add electrolytes and sometimes just drinking coconut water, you know, and also what you have available, you know. So do you, do you combine, you know, breath work? with the cold as well, or do you do that kind of separately in, you know, your practices and, and trainings or, you know, what, what do you do? Oh, on I like the to really incorporate that also, but it also really depends on the athletes mm -hmm. or on the client. I mean, also sometimes train executives and then I really like to combine it. And it also depends how spiritual the people are, you know, so I like if I, if I have more spiritual clients, we do humming in the water. We do actually breath work while you're in the water as well, you know, and then with some guys, um, um, we, we try to separate the whole thing, you know? So do you do, you're saying it's, it's mostly the Wim Hof style of, of breath or do you do any other styles and can you maybe walk oh, us no, through like a, you walk us through like a typical breath work session, like time. And, you know, I, I feel like breath work is, you know, I've, I've experimented, I've read Wim Hof's books. I've, you know, done some, uh, you know, sessions myself every day for months. And I feel like a lot of people still hear this, you know, breath work, and they don't really conceptualize or grasp, grasp exactly what it is and how they can implement it into their practice. So I'm curious, yeah, you know, what like an average session looks like for you or, or someone you're training. So I use the Wim Hof method, but I also rely on all, a lot of different methods. Um, the Wim Hof method is great. I mean, you take around 30 breaths and then you do a breath hold with the empty air you empty the air out and then one one breath hold with full air and and that's also really good 
but it really depends on on the athlete as well. I don't believe it's so good to hyperventilate if you have anxiety. I, I personally believe also it's very good also to focus on slow breathing. So I do different der, der, uh, variations of the Wim Hof method. So I mix it up. I'm also certified in soma breath work. So and I also produce my own music to do breath work. So you breathe along to the rhythm of the music. So that that's a lot more fun and you it's good to vary it, you know. So if you if you look at the textbooks and the science of breathing, uh, they would actually tell you you should not breathe through your mouth, you should breathe through your nose, you know. So the nose has many, many functions. Um it it it's it doesn't just it filters the air, it moists the air, it puts the right pressure in the air. So normally we should really breathe through our nose and especially also at night. That's why also I teach people if they have sleep apnea and all these kind of things, I really teach them to breathe through their nose at night. And if they can't, also I do mouth taping. So you tape actually your mouth, you know. So and so it's basically some of the sessions, are it's similar to, to the Wim Hof method. It's just the tempo of, of the breath. So sometimes I do, you inhale, let's say, for four seconds and exhale for eight seconds. So it's a really slow type of breath, activating the parasympathetic nervous system. And that's very good for recovery. I don't believe doing the Wim Hof method, hyperventilating at night before going to bed. Uh, for me personally, like I can't sleep. I mean, there's some people that can sleep after, but that really impairs my sleep. So at night, I like to do slow breathing. And in the morning, I like to do quicker breathing to energize myself, you know? That actually makes a lot of sense because I've, I've done something like, like Tristan, I've, I've read Wim Hof's book and I've, I've actually used his app like quite a bit over the last couple of years. But, um, what I found was doing that sort of hyperventilation breathing for me. And it was interesting that you brought up anxiety, um, made, made me feel anxious. And so yeah. for me, I, especially like during the time of the day has mattered a lot for me. And I found sort of the same type of practice of doing more of that type of breath work in the morning has a more beneficial effect than later in the day when you're trying to wind it down and kind of bring that sympathetic up or parasympathetic up and uh, go into the evening. Um, I found things like box breathing. Is there anything to like single nostril breathing? Cause I've read some stuff about that too. Oh, that's, I don't particularly use that a lot, but it's also a really effective method. You know, I mean, there's, there's in my eyes, there's not just one method. It's the same thing with a diet. There's not the perfect diet for everybody. And it's the same thing with breathing. So I, I, I do use that, but not much. But I also use box breathing. I use Tomo, but like the, the Wim Hof Method is actually based on Tomo. Um, so I'd like to play around with it. And it's good to really mix it up. So otherwise your body gets used to the same response if you do the same thing over and over again. So in a sense, it's sort of like hypertrophy training. So you got you keep mixing it up. Absolutely. It's exactly the same thing, really, yeah. Interesting. Do you do any, uh, you know, elevation altitude training for, for some of your athletes? I feel like this is a really hot topic, at least in the, the fight community and UFC. I know a lot of folks are sleeping in these beds or whatever with, with high altitude simulation, um, you know, and then they train at sea level or wherever to get more output from, you know, red blood cells. Um, we both live at kind of higher elevation. We're almost, yeah, we're at 1500 meters here and, you know, hiking up at 3000 meters pretty regularly. So I'm, I'm curious if this is something that, you know, you know about or you implement or you have thoughts on in general, because it's always just like something I'm, I'm very interested in and uh, getting people's feedback on. 
Well, I personally, for explosive sports, I don't believe in high-altitude training because there's studies basically confirming that your type 2B fibers take on properties as type 2A fibers. So this can actually slow you down. And often when you do high-altitude training and you go back to normal level, you, it, it goes all to, it normalized and you have don't have actually more red blood cells, you know. But as where if you live at a high altitude, I mean, it certainly does give you benefit for sure. Okay. Yeah, I just... And it also depends on the sport. When it comes to aerobic sports, I do, I would implement actually high altitude training, but not when it comes to explosive sports. Yeah, yeah. I'm just curious. I, I know whenever I go like just down to sea level for at least just like a few days and I go to the gym, like a, I feel stronger for sure, but I'm sure like it, the effects kind of wane. And, and that's also because I live up here for multiple years and I'm always even higher altitude, but yeah, I, I, I'm just always curious if, you know, I, I, these fighters and UFC and everyone's just getting these very expensive, fancy tents. And if they actually do anything or if it's just kind of a, a simulation, um, you know, placebo effect. Well, I've been doing um, taking part in, in high altitude training with fighters where we went in the mm -hmm. mountains, and I would, if you do it, I would not recommend it for explosive sports, yeah. as I said. Then I would recommend actually doing the training cap in mountains rather than using these okay. channels yeah. and everything. You can waste a lot of money on those kind of things. It's the same thing, also. Like I think, like an ice bath is way more effective than going into a cryotherapy chamber. So I think you can also waste a lot of money on that. And I think a lot of these tools are really expensive and nowhere near as effective. And I think also like an ice bath in nature is also way more effective than an ice bath just in, 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 at home, you know? So the best way to do it is really in nature, you know? So and I think that's also a problem for a lot of athletes is that they lose completely the connection to nature, you know? And that's also what, that causes also anxiety in a lot of people because they lose that kind of connection. So if you make those people just at least on the weekends – Try to connect with nature that has like a tremendous effect also on a hormonal response, you know? So, yeah, Tristan and I were actually talking also before you uh, came in about uh, my plans, like for the summer, about getting out like every weekend and camping or like at least getting in there and hiking and getting out and completely away from everything. Because I think we, we live in these boxes and I think it actually is detrimental on multiple levels, um, not just psychologically, but I think innately it's just not where we're meant to be. And so it creates sort of like these psychological tears in our being and uh, is like subconsciously brings, brings everything down for pretty much everyone. So it's kind of fascinating um, how even uh, we were talking, I think, in our last podcast with another guest about how even escaping for a brief period of time and going into like a pretty um, desolate area for even a week, like camping can like completely reset like your circadian rhythms and all that stuff. Oh, I totally agree. You know, they, you have people that have insomnia. They go to clinics and spend thousands of dollars. If you take these people just camping, like for two weeks, it can actually heal insomnia within two weeks, you know? So I totally agree. I mean, it's, it really improves your circadian, resets your circadian rhythm completely. Is there anything you do for yourself um, to like help with that? How do you get out and about? Um, I'm in nature every weekend. Like I swim in the ocean, like in, in Germany, in, um, I have a house north of Germany on an island called Sylt. And I basically, like today I was also swimming in the ocean and I went to sauna afterwards and everything. Nice. So I do that every weekend and I'm, it's, it's almost addictive habit really, you know. So I really need it. I get depressed. In, I live in the city, but I get kind of depressed 
if I stay in the city on the weekends. So for me, I really need to connect with nature on the weekends, you know. That's pretty cold water too, right? In the <laughs> Oh yeah, it's really cold and it feels even like the the salt content is especially high yeah. here. The, the water feels even much colder than the, the water in the mountains, actually. Do you wear a wetsuit then when you swim, or is it just brief, like you're just doing short sprint swimming? Yeah, well, I don't stay in there that long. Yeah. I stay in there five okay. minutes. Yeah, yeah. And, and obviously no, no wetsuit yeah. or anything, just the trunks. And then um, I just swim around a little bit, and that's it, you know. And it's, it's quite aggressive, especially when you high, have high waves, you know. But it's a lot of fun, you know. So nature is really brutal. You know? Yeah, no, and that's awesome. And, and people like to, you know, most people would say, you know, oh, you know, live in northern Germany or something like that. It's like tough in the winter or whatever. It's like you, if you want to go outside, like you can go outside in, in nature. And if you get acclimated to the cold, you know, this is why you do cold training, right? So then in the winter, you, you know, you're better off and you can, you know, withstand these colder temperatures without being absolutely miserable. So I, I think people need to realize that it does matter and it actually helps you um, in multiple facets. So before we move on, I just want to ask one last question on the training aspect. You know, is there anything like you're really excited about that is kind of like coming to the frontier? Like a lot of these modalities talk about have been around for a while. They're free or low cost, but they're extremely effective. Is there anything, you know, new that you think uh is is going to be a difference maker or do you really stick to these traditional methods you know the foundational knowledge of cold you know clean diet sleep nature breath work uh, that we talked about yeah to be honest i think there's nothing new that really amazes me it's rather sticking to all these old things you know and if you think about also like breath work i mean whether it's a whim of method whether it's box breathing it's all based on pranayama you know so it's nothing new really. So I think we need to rather follow these old traditions and, and listen to the wisdom of, of, of these people back then, you know? So it's amazing how far ahead they were already back a few thousand years ago, you know? Yeah. I mean, and going back to nature, even it's like a lot of the answers that we look for and things are already out there as far as like looking for the right diet and all this stuff. Like if you just look at nature around you, usually the answers are, are clear if you remove all the noise, but what, what really makes it difficult is we're surrounded by all this buzz and I think that that kind of fogs our view. So, yeah, um, you know, we talk a lot about training, breath work. I think it's all fantastic. It's all, you know, very decentralized in nature, right? Like it's free or low cost. You know, these modalities have been around for a long time. Um, they're proven and they're effective. And, you know, you don't need to spend all this money and get roped into the marketing, you know, plies of, of, of health. But I'm curious on, on kind of the opposite side of things now is, you know, you're into Bitcoin. So I want to hear about, you know, how you got to that realization, how you maybe connect the same disciplines or mindset to, you know, your training, um, and then how you kind of see it as, you know, a valuable asset or, you know, money, resource, everything um, in today's context. Well, we were just talking about nature. So I think like Bitcoin is nature. So you should not try to fight it. You should rather embrace it, you know. And um, so I got into Bitcoin in 2020. I mean, as I said, Leon is the guy, thanks to him. He's the one that orange pulled me and it was great to have guidance by him. Not so I didn't even get into shit coins in the first place. So L lucky you. Him, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't have to buy any 
Solana or any Ripple or any shit like that. And um, so I had this aha moment basically in 2020, you know, during the COVID crisis, I think I thought like, if there's a time to invest in this asset, now is the time. So I started buying at $10,000 and um, then slowly and surely got more into it. And But it didn't take me long. It took me only like half a year. And then I almost went like all in basically. So, and uh, it, it's really good. Like, I mean, it takes some time until you're fully convinced. In the beginning, it was for me like a, how you perhaps call it, NGU, like a number go up technology, you know? So at the beginning, I was only interested in the people that were talking about trading it and, 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 and concentrating on the number go up technology. And I was actually almost making fun because I didn't understand it. Fun of the people for, for, for that used it as like rather a FGU, like a freedom go up technology, you know? So, but the more I got into it, now I actually spend more time actually for Bitcoin as a freedom go up technology, you know? So now I, I, I'm actually spending more time looking at people like Robert Breedlove, Gigi, and those kind of guys actually inspire me the most. So, so I think all, at the end, the number it's, it's secondary now to me, you know? So I think this is like a paradigm shift. Like this is like the time for us to opt into a, a better system, you know? So, and, and even the people that get into this just because of personal greed, I mean, Bitcoin, I think turns, as Gigi said, just says, um, it turns personal greed into freedom, you know? So, um, I'm, I, I spend most of my time thinking about Bitcoin of my free time. So I spend probably more time thinking about it than not thinking about it, you know? Yeah. It's actually funny. Cause, uh, my friend, uh, my friend, Eric told me about Bitcoin, I think in 20, 18 and he would kept telling me to get into it and i just like i I, I didn't really look into it to my for myself i was like oh man there's some some out there shit and i was like i don't know if i can i don't know if i can just throw my money in there and like what if it everyone's telling me about the volatility and my even my dad still like gets on me he's like oh man what about the volatility i'm like well if you think about it like how's the volatility been in everything else lately so (laughs) so what do you think but i wanted wanted that's also like a thing you know like i mean as Michael Saylor says, volatility is vitality, you know? Oh, yeah, 100%. It's the same thing when it comes to sport, you know? Let's say if you look at uh, Usain Bolt, he might not be active anymore, you know? But when he was active, his career was very volatile, you know? So he would perform and break a world record and do really well. But then he was injured and he would not perform at all. So with him, you could also say that he was very volatile, but then he could really perform well at the end. And the volatility in Bitcoin is to the upside. So it's not a big problem anyway, you know? Well, I mean, a lot of it too comes from a lot of, I think, misunderstanding. And and I mean, a lot of people that will criticize it often don't know anything about it. And I'll hardly, I won't pretend to know like the ins and outs of everything with Bitcoin or any of that. Actually, uh, Tristan's educated me a lot with his book um, about it. But I actually uh, was curious, how was Bitcoin perceived in Germany over there compared to po- over here in the U.S.? Um, I, I, I tend to meet a lot of people that are into it, but I think that's just because of the space I'm in. But I was, I was kind of curious how it's perceived over there. Well, it's, it, it's getting better, but I mean, the mainstream media still don't get it. And I think it's the same thing in the US, you know? So it takes, you really need to go really deep down the rabbit hole to really fully understand these things, you know? And especially also understanding proof of work. I mean, 
you read all these news saying that that Bitcoin is so bad for the environment, but I think that's really bullshit. I mean, it's it's the best way of energy rebalancing, and it's actually good for the environment. And if you invest in Bitcoin, you actually improve the world. You make this world a better place, you know. So it enforces human rights, and people don't understand all these benefits, you know. And I think you can only understand these benefits if you really go deep down the rabbit hole. So, and most of these people never take the, that time, you know. Yeah, I mean, at the cusp of it, it's just we're so ingrained in the centralized system that's you know built around incentives that's serving these big corporations. So. You know, the, the media is owned by, you know, big corporations and the government. So the average person is, is really not going to believe any of this when they're just consuming, you know, this, this falsified and extremely biased, you know, information of news and, and everything. So it, it really does take a personal awakening to kind of go and look at the world through this lens. Um, you know, I know that happened to me, you know, five, six years ago or four or five years ago, I should say. And from now, you know, once you have that perspective, you, you'll never go back. So I think COVID woke up a lot of people, which is good. Um, I, th I think we have a lot more work to do. So it's encouraging to hear because to be honest, Germany, Germany is interesting to me because you guys are like the biggest rule followers in the world almost. And COVID was pretty strict over there. I remember I was there, you know, last spring and people were still wearing masks like everywhere. I'm just like, wow. This is a whole new world, but, um, you know, the culture is great. You have a lot of intelligent people. So hopefully, you know, that kind of momentum builds there. It's kind of a decentralized node and we continue to move upwards here, I think, uh, as well. Well, Germany is one of the countries that's running actually the most nodes worldwide, if you, if you look at the number of nodes. So it's that's good. It's, it's, <laughs> I, I think the you know with the energy crisis as well, and maybe you could chime in of that. Maybe a lot of people have have begun to question you know the mainstream narrative over there. Also, I, I believe it's probably likely, right? It's likely, but there's still so many misconceptions misconceptions about, especially proof of work. You know, I mean, you have even Greenpeace like and uh, doing campaigns like financed by Ripple, um, saying how bad it is and everything, but they don't really understand really proof of work in, in more detail, you know? So, and I think that's going to take quite some time. I think until people actually get that, I think you are way more advanced in the U S I think if you look at some of the senators in Austin and stuff like that, do you try and orange pill uh, your athletes at all? Or how do you see kind of their, their perspective in, in terms of this? I don't, Actually, I try not to orange pill my athletes because I try to stay away because because of the volatility, you know, and sometimes they don't, they're not really, if, if Bitcoin goes down, then they would already get angry at me and probably lose my client, you know. If you know that you keep the client for four years for sure, then I would orange pill them, but I'm actually quite careful about it. But other than that, I'm trying to pretty much orange pill everybody out of my friends and everything. I think the the most difficult people to to orange pill are actually your own family members actually you know so I would actually totally agree um just thinking of my dad and this proof of work uh thing that you were talking about right before like people were they misunderstanding could you I'm going to send this to him when we release this so could you explain maybe what you see as the biggest misconceptions with the with proof of work uh concepts in bitcoin well, I think the biggest misconception is that it wastes way too much energy, you know? And if if you don't see any value in Bitcoin, 
then it is a big waste of energy, you know. But if this can replace the fi whole financial system and can really improve this world, then then it's totally worth it. And it's the same thing if you look at YouTube. It uses up almost 2% of all the electricity worldwide. If you don't see any value in it, there's a lot of waste of energy. But if you see that you get free education on there and all the good things about it, then it's totally worth it, you know. And I mean, also, if you look at all these high data centers, they use up a lot of energy, but because we see value in, in them, nobody actually criticizes that, you know. It's actually a really good way to look at it um, because it's, it's all perception. And as long as your mm -hmm. perception is looked at as value, then it, it is meaningful. Because I could argue so many things for the way we, like our current centralized systems work, many, all the centralized systems, whether it's medical or like agricultural stuff or anything like that, and all that. You could look at that as lots of waste of energy as well, especially in the agricultural sector, which is a bit of a different topic. But um, transportation, all these things, it, it's it's just perception, like you were saying. Absolutely, and I think you also people also put like um, Bitcoin is in the same bucket as all the other crypto shit coins, you know, and and and, and you really got to differentiate. I mean, Bitcoin was designed to enrich humanity, and all these other shit coins were designed to enrich certain individuals, like in our leg legacy system, you know? So I think that's a huge difference. Yeah, I think it's just going to take time. I mean, I'm, it's really interesting. To me, it's like fascinating to, you know, see how all this is going to play out. I mean, we've already seen here, you know, a little mini, mini run on bank in insolvency. You know, Bitcoin's doing well right now. The price is kind of irrelevant, as you're saying. To me, I almost have hope the price stays low of course it's, it's you realize it's just an accumulation game um but at the end of the day you know people are are either going to take the dive head first and you know with everything right like you're training professional athletes you know you're you're in a world where it's like you're fully committing to something you're taking a risk you're taking a leap of faith um you're betting on yourself and i feel like you're taking that individual responsibility and that's what you need to do with with bitcoin as well i mean The whole issue, the reason why we started this podcast is because people just keep outsourcing everything of their lives and then they play this victim mentality, wondering why their lives suck. When in reality, if you rope all that back in, be the sovereign individual being controlled, then you're the one who is at the, at the helms of, of your own life and, and you get to dictate your money, your health and your you know, happiness. No, absolutely. And I mean, especially once they're going to roll out these CBDCs, mm. I mean, that's going to, then the shit is going to hit the fan, you know, then, then like, in, they're already talking about it in Germany that you won't be able to spend more than 1000 euros in cash. And then you, you have a loss of privacy, like completely, then why should the government know how I spent my money, you know, and then soon you'll be banned to buy certain things or like, especially also with an AI and adding AI to that and everything, you know, your your car, your your self-driving car might take you straight to the police station if you've done something wrong, you know. So, so, so do you have do you have more of an optimistic view or a pessimistic view on on how all this plays out? Especially, I'm curious, you know, in Europe, I feel like Europe's definitely a little further along on that trend, you know, than the US. The US is kind of we we have fifty fifty here in terms of people wanting more or less. You know, and then you have places like Canada, Australia, which are a bit more extreme. So I, I'm curious how you see, you know, are you optimistic about the future in Germany? Are you looking, you know, 
for backup plans. A lot of Bitcoiners like collecting passports. They all want to move to El Salvador. I think some of them are a bit, you know, pessimistic on, on the future, but I'm also young and naive to some degree. Well, I'm always optimistic about the future, but the question is really whether is the EU going to ban proof of work? And then for me, it's actually time to pack up my things and move to another country, you know. But until then, I'm totally optimistic about the future. And that's, I mean, the only enemy for Bitcoin might be some regulations. But luckily, all the countries will never be agree on one thing, you know. That's, that's the only thing that could stop Bitcoin is actually world peace. And if it takes that to reduce my net worth, that we have world peace, then I'm willing to to do that. Then then it's fine, you know. As long as we have then world peace, then it's fine for Bitcoin to go to zero. But I don't think it's ever going to happen. It never happened that the world agreed on one thing that every that you have all the countries agreeing on the same thing. I think it's never going to happen. So you can just move out to other countries where they have different regulations, you know. But right now, the regulations in Germany are pretty good, you know. Like you buy Bitcoin, you hold it for one year, and it's tax-free. So I can't complain, really, you know. Oh wow, that's pretty nice, actually. That's kind of what I was going to ask you was what the regulation was like over there compared to here, because in my in in, in my opinion, sometimes I like like Tristan was saying, it's sort of like a fifty-fifty over here on on what what could go, what could happen, depending on like who's in power and all these various things, how people react to changes. Um, I'm pretty optimistic over here. I feel like enough people, especially during 2020, like we mentioned earlier, have woken up here that at least because we have the state system, I feel like individually state-wise, in some states, you'll, you'll be more okay than other states, but we'll see how it goes. I, I, I have to be cautiously optimistic because otherwise I'll just cry myself to sleep every night. Yeah. I mean, especially I think in the States during COVID, I think things went improved quite a lot. I mean, also... The mayor of Miami getting paid in Bitcoin, then the mayor in New York getting paid some of his wages in Bitcoin. But I think it's it's fruity scammers like like Sam Bankman fraud and all these guys, you know, like that puts a bad image on 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 Bitcoin, even though it's not even Bitcoin. It was rather crypto related, you know. But the 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 mainstream media they don't differentiate between crypto and bitcoin you know? so well and that's bitcoin. and that's the battle that anything like this is going to have to face is sort of the the bad actors that are within anything i mean yeah. and we could go on about like for instance like the carnivore community like any any sort of community is going to have something that goes haywire and then the, like the mainstream conventional sides always going to take that and make it marked as the whole thing is bad it's just how it is Absolutely. I mean, Senator Warren, she's forming this anti-crypto, how's it called? Anti-crypto? Yeah, task force. I don't even know. Something like that. Yeah. Anti-crypto force. And I, I believe we already have an anti-crypto force and they're called Bitcoin maximalists, yeah. you know, so we don't need another one, you know, so. Yeah, yeah that's, that's how it goes. So, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, she's incentivized to, you know, get reelected, appeal to her constituents who clearly, you know, are all in the realm of believing that they can make a difference in climate change. And, uh, you know, they're all vegans. They, uh, they hate Bitcoin. It's all like the same type of person when in reality that none of them actually understand the, the fun deeper functionality of, of any of these topics. Right. And, and that's my biggest pet peeve is like, you know, health, nutrition, Bitcoin, you know, energy consumption, the grid, like these are all very technical topics. So I can't believe that we have journalists, you know, writing about this stuff. They really have no idea what's going on. I mean, the, the article that just came out about, you know, riot or just like the Texas grid and all that. And it's like they don't even 
take ERCOT's perspective and they just shit on Bitcoin mining and they don't even understand the high level of how grid functionality um, occurs. And but that's what it is, you know, ignorance. And uh, we can just sit here cozy knowing that we have a deeper understanding and that we believe this is, you know, the future. So. Moritz, want to be considerable of your time. I know it's a bit late. So we're talking a lot about, you know, some great things, athletics, training, diet, cold, you know, from, from what I'm getting at, you know, summarizing the many of the most effective, you know, training habits, health habits um, are free, are low cost, you know, connecting with nature is invaluable. We preach that a lot. We love cold, you know, eating an animal-based diet is easy, it's simple, it's effective, high protein. Um, you know, Bitcoin is great. It's empowering, but do your own research, take a deeper dive. So at a high level, you know, decentralization, you know, how, how do you embody decentralization or think about it as, as really improving the state of the world? And, you know, what does it mean to you to truly be a decentralized person? Well, I think that decent, most of the people, when they talk about decentralization, it's exactly the opposite. So I think the term is really getting abused quite a lot. So as soon as I think about decentralization, I actually think about Bitcoin and especially about proof of work. But I think there's a few new systems where you can actually do call it decentralized. You know, like, I mean, if you look at Noster now, I think it's a great way to communicate. And I think it's a much, much better than, than communicating on Twitter. And, and it's like the first time that, that we have social media where you can call it that it is actually decentralized, you know, so... Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I think more of these things are, are going to pop up. But to me, it comes down at the individual level, right? I mean, it's like you just got to take ownership. There's some things you can, you know, win and some things you can't win. Like before Noster, there is, there's not really decentralized social media. I mean, your phone, your computer, your car, you can't really buy these things from decentralized companies or small or local producers. It just doesn't exist. So you have to pick and choose your battles. Um, and that's why we're big on food. You know, talk to your local rancher or farmer because you can actually make an impact and support decentralization. You can't do that in all facets of life. Um, but hopefully we see more, you know, more progress in this space, you know, coming. And I, I think we will. For sure. I totally agree. And I think I also le- buy all my meat locally and, 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 and visit my local butcher. I think you should support them because these people, they, they, they hardly survive, you know? So it's the big chains actually that destroy like all these single shops, you know? So we should really support our local shops for sure. Yeah, hundred percent. And, you know, people need to get accustomed to paying a little more. And that's where we have this whole, you know, exchange value for value with Bitcoin and paying local producers in Bitcoin. That's really gets me fired up. So maybe you can orange pill some of those guys as well. And, and uh, we'll be right on the right track for progress. Yeah, I totally agree. I think there's no such thing as cheap meat. I mean, the only place where I eat, ate really good cheap meat is in, in South Africa. Okay. Uh, I've heard South America so as well. You know, Argentina, uh, Brazil, Chile. But that's because their economy is fucked. That's not because, you know, it's it's worth less, really. <laughs> but in South Africa, the, the good meat is so cheap. Yeah. You feel actually sorry that they killed the animal for that kind of price, you know? so It's good to know. But all right, all right, Moritz. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find more of you? Um, you know, social media, 
website? Where where can you be contacted, found? Well, you can maybe find me on Instagram and on Facebook. And um, I'm just setting up my Nostra account, so I'll be active on that. Uh, I, I'm using Twitter as well, but it's really just for me to get information for myself. I'm not active. I'm only retweeting things. But um, mainly, basically, Instagram and soon on Nostra as well. Okay, and your Instagram is just Moritz Klatten? You can find me at the Moritz Klatten. Okay, yeah. perfect. It's Champ Performance is the name of my business, but you can find me on the Morris Club. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Decentralized Radio. Have a good one.